From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, targeted cross-linking and sterilization guidelines at ASCRS. Don't forget that epithelial remodeling of the anterior surface is due to the interaction of the shape and the lid margin. First this. There's a lot to be said for the printed page. It's always on, loads instantly, it's very high resolution, and there's no monthly fee. But one thing it's not is interactive. I know journals have advertised interactive content and multimedia, but to get to it, you need to type a URL in a computer. iWorld AR changes all that. Once you have the app, you simply aim your phone at an iWorld page with the AR symbol and videos, interactive material, presentations, and podcasts appear in the page. Amazing! The effect is stunning and the app is free. Go to the Apple App Store or the Google Play Store and search iWorld AR. That's one word with no spaces. iWorld AR. Great job. Search iWorld AR, one word, on the App Store or the Play Store. It's like ophthalmology's secret decoder ring. I had the opportunity to interview a number of people advancing the forefront of ophthalmology during the 2018 Annual Congress of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery in Washington, D.C., Edited versions of these interviews are presented on the iWorld Replay website as brief videos. I'm going to present these interviews in their entirety over a number of podcasts. Today, we hear from Teo Seiler on targeted cross-linking for keratoconus and David Chang on new CMS sterilization guidelines. I'm here with Teo Seiler. Teo, we have uh, exciting things to talk about today. I'm very enthusiastic about this. You're talking about... Curve cross-linking. Tell me, what, what is that, first of all, and then I have some very specific questions for you. Oh, the idea for curve um, was originated in Cleveland, Ohio, when B.J. Dupes and Cynthia Roberts thought that keratoconus is not a disease of the whole cornea, but it's only a localized weakening. And then the idea came up, hey, if it's only a localized weakening, why shouldn't we then only treat localized? And that's how um, the topography-guided treatment, cross-linking treatment of the keratoconus cornea came up. We did a prospective study in about 20 eyes, published it two years ago, and now we have the three-year follow-up. And it turns out that it's more efficient. We get more flattening, um, even continuously flattening over years. Uh, We get um, a smaller healing time because we have not to remove the epithelium from the whole cornea. Uh, and therefore, and we got a much better regularization, highly statistically significant. So in essence, it's a new approach, with, which is minimal invasive or less invasive than the normal cross-linking. And in addition, you do have pa- uh, the selection of patterns. So it's not only the keratoconus that can be treated, but other peripheral disorders of the cornea also. And presumably the, the, the pattern is customized to the, the 
topography that, 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 the, that the patient has? Actually, it's more to the tomography than the topography. The topography gives you information about the tear film shape, but the tomography also gives you information about the back surface of the cornea, <coughs> which today we don't do with the Pentacam anymore. We do it today with the OC high-resolution OCD, and we are centering actually our treatment on the maximum of the posterior float because um, any information from the anterior surface is modified by epithelial thickness. Remember, epithelial thickness over the cone is in the order of 25 to 35 microns. In the fundus of the cone, it's 80 microns. So the outer surface is some kind of falsified. It's wrong information. And that's why we take the posterior surface and center our treatments on the posterior service uh, maximum float so I'm, I'm glad that that you that you brought that up because it leads into what I what I what I wanted to ask next I can understand your uh, point that the um, that the that the epithelium is is masking a lot of what's going on with the with the with the stroma and there's variability to epithelial thickness and you're not treating based upon that fine I totally buy it however the 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 reason for teleologically the reason for the different epithelial thickness is is that there is epithelial modeling or remodel well modeling but after treatment there's going to be remodeling of the of the epithelium that will be i would assume would be would be influenced by the treatment that you're doing. How are you able to predict what the refractive outcome is going to be? Oh, don't forget that epithelial remodeling of the anterior surface is due to the interaction of the shape and the lid margin. The epithelium grows and grows and grows up to 100 microns, but it's sh but the lid margin is just limiting it. And if you do have a, a bulging outward area, the epithelium will be thinner because the lid margin sh uh, uh, shapes uh, the, the cornea in a way that is more or less uh, spherical. So in essence, um, you get the same remodeling effect, but less because you flatten the cone. So this is wonderful and you know if if all that this dealt with were the treatment of of of, of keratoconus would be a, a wonderful and complete story but off camera you were telling me about other applications for this technology can I get you to talk about that yeah remember that in radial keratotomy we are creating or has been created an a keratotasia or weakening of the cornea in the mid periphery so the radial keratotomy effect was flattening in the center by bulging out in the mid-periphery and we know uh, according to the Perk study of George Waring we had about 50% with progressive keratoconus, uh, with per progressive uh, hypropia which is a kind of keratotation in the mid-periphery going on for many years. Now those patients are coming in every second year with a shift of half of a diopter in hypropia and now they are in the 50s or 60s and needing um, every, every year um, a new pair of glasses. And those patients want to stop the progressive hypropia without keratoplasty, because that would be the, op the, the alternative option. And now, if, if in those patients, if we stiffen only the mid-periphery where the bulging effect happens, then of course we are doing a minimal invasive surgery again, and that works with a ring-like tapered structure of the ultraviolet light. So that is one additional application of keratoconus um, that you do a selective cross-linking of weakened cornea. That is so interesting. 
Uh, that's really, really, really neat, neat stuff. It's 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 wonderful how uh, there's this this iterative process of um, new tools and then techniques and then growing out of the techniques more new tools and new, newer newer techniques. But, but, but there's yes. even another application. Remember that if we do a if we do hey Bill, if we do if we do a keratoplasty, a simple keratoplasty which has been done for many, many years uh, in, in keratoconus, there's still the host outside the transplant which is diseased. Right. And and in many of our re-keratoblasties, up to 14% of the cases, 20 years after keratoplasty, need a retreatment, not because the transplant is not working, but the con that the PMD or the keratoconus continues in the host. Now, what would we do today? In those cases, of course, we do a cross-linking only the host. That means you do, again, a ring-like cross-linking close to the limbus. It's so, so interesting. Tell you, this is wonderful stuff. I mean, you, we've yet to have a conversation which you don't tell me about wonderful stuff, but this is really, really something. I want to thank you for, for bringing this interesting topic to us, and as always, for being so very generous with your time with us today. Okay, thank you very much indeed also. I'm here with David Chang. David, it's, it's unusual in these interviews to have breaking news, uh, but we have breaking news now. Um, uh, I'm, I'm very interested in what you're going to say about uh, new guidelines for cleaning and sterilization and from where these guidelines came. But let's start with the bottom line. Let's talk about what the guidelines are, and then we'll talk about what their genesis was. Great. Uh, so these are guidelines that are specially specific for ophthalmology. Uh, we have a task force uh, uh, led by ASCRS, but with uh, AAO and OOS. Uh, the Ophthalmic Surgery Center organization as our uh, partners and collaborators. And we have worked for literally four years to develop updated uh, guidelines for the processing of our sterile ophthalmic instruments. And where where did this come from? What's, what's, why, why is it that this was worked on? Yeah, I think the necessity uh, really came from uh, questioning by many of the accreditation organizations of the way we sterilize instruments. You know, we're unique. Our instruments are very small. Uh, we have a very short turnover in between our cases. Uh, and uh, the, the, the latest threat actually was a ruling in 2014 by CMS that immediate use steam sterilization, IUSS, which they considered to be flash sterilization, could no longer be routinely used, only in emergencies. So that created this question of, you know, is what we do in ophthalmology, IUSS, and many surveyors uh, for Medicare deemed it so. Uh, so this really had dire economic and practical circumstances if in between surgical cases you had to do a wrapped, fully dried terminal cycle that uh, with some sterilizers takes an hour. Um, so we formed this task force with uh, expert representation. Uh, a lot of the cataract clinical committee uh, is on that. It's chaired by myself and Nick Mamelis. Uh, and one of the first things we did is we surveyed all of the OOS member ASCs. So it's close to 200 ASCs uh, responded. And it turns out that about half uh, use short cycle steam sterilization in between cases. Uh, there's no difference between those that do and don't in terms of self-reported infection rate. 
and we found that the two most common tabletop sterilizers were the Statum and the Steris. And again, roughly half of the surgery centers had at least one of those uh, tabletop units. So the question was, uh, is that safe? Uh, we had some negotiations and discussions with CMS to clarify that this is a long-standing practice. We have an extremely low infection rate in ophthalmology, particularly with cataract surgery. Uh, but of course, as with anything, you'd like to you know, sort of have evidence. And so eventually what we ended up doing is uh, an expensive study that took quite a bit of time to run, uh, but we conducted this with uh, one of the validation firms called High Power. And we basically used both of these sterilizers to uh, mimic or duplicate some of what we do to clean, uh, and we used FACO hand pieces as the most difficult of our intraocular instruments to sterilize. And so uh, the series of experiments uh, showed a number of things. One is if the instruments are stored overnight for later use on a subsequent day, then of course you do a full terminal cycle with drying phase, uh, full drying phase, and then wrapping. But if you're going to use them for sequential same-day use, which means I'm going to sterilize them and then use them on the next case, that we really didn't find unwrapped instruments was a problem, or as some of the sterilizers allow you to do to interrupt the drying phase, that having wet instruments uh, was a problem. And so you, one of the ways to study this is you actually pipette off the moisture uh, from the container, from the instruments, and you do a series of uh, uh, cultures that are very sensitive for anything. And we were able to show uh, in uh, you know repeated testing uh, using FACO hand pieces from the main manufacturers that this was in fact safe. So this is a paper now that's been uh, published in ophthalmology. It's available online. It hasn't yet been in print. And that was one of the studies that we could then base our guideline recommendations on. So, David, this is, as you mentioned, is a a study that was uh, under the auspices of uh, several groups, ASCRS being being one. But from the way that that you're talking, it sounds like ASA that ACRS played a, a, a leadership role with this. Am, am I reading you right with that? Uh, yeah, I, I would say that's right. I mean, we uh, had a history uh, of, again, uh, leading an effort when the Joint Commission uh, back in 2009, same thing, questioned whether there should be a full terminal one-hour wrap cycle in between consecutive cases. Uh, we again partnered with the uh, AAO uh, back at that time. And, uh, you know, this was a, a very large priority for ASCRS, and so we were uh, very happy to lead this effort and very happy to join in with US and, and the Academy. Are there any uh, findings that you made or recommendations that, that you have that, that may change the way that, that I practice? I know that we were talking off, off camera. I don't think that there are. Yeah, I think one of the, the main things was to really defend and document the safety of really what are long-standing practices uh, in ophthalmology and to, again, uh, in, in many cases, what our guidelines have are uh, evidence-based studies that were initiated by task force members. I think uh, the one area that uh, deserves looking at for everyone is how you use enzyme. Uh, many of the instructions for use for instruments actually require using enzyme to clean the instruments. 
but in uh, Nick Mamelis's uh, studies of TAS, uh, enzyme use is actually one of the things that's associated with a higher risk of TAS. Why is that? Well, it's hard to clean or rinse off all of the enzyme. And again, one of the new studies that is highlighted in our guidelines was one where they did uh, try to rinse off thoroughly uh, phaco tips, and then if you do uh, ultrastructural analysis, you find there's always residual enzyme on there. So uh, a little bit of enzyme, of course, in a joint or an abdomen is not going to do anything, but in the tiny anterior chamber uh, where the eye is so sensitive to any contaminant, it can cause TAS. Well, the, 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 this is... It's a it's a it's a wonderful thing that they, this this guideline these guidelines were um, created and to represent us as as much as to guide us. Uh, David, I want to thank you for uh, bringing this this important um, effort to us, uh, and as always for being so very very generous with your time with us today. Thank you, Josh. Teo Seiler is the head of the Institute for Refractive and Ophthalmic Surgery in Zurich, Switzerland. David Chang is Clinical Professor of Ophthalmology at the University of California, San Francisco, in San Francisco, California. Ask questions of Dr. Seiler, Dr. Chang, or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at josh at iWorld.org. Essie from Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.